Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi everybody, I am in fact Lauren and this is Kit and this is Sarah and we are your Next Words Planning Committee and I'm just so, thank you so much for being here for our first event. We couldn't possibly be prouder of these people and of all the hard work that everyone has done and we're just really, really glad to share it with you. Um, We have our book. It's called Ephemera, and it's full of the wonderful writing of all of these people, and then some. And it is on sale for $15. If you want a copy, you and, should. And a designer will be here, one of the designers. Oh, yeah. She, Which one? She's Kat. Oh. So, yeah, if you, if you see that person, you should thank her for the beautiful, wonderful work that she did for our book. So, yeah, I'm just, thanks, thanks again for coming. I'm very glad that this is happening, and I'm going to hand it over to lovely Michelle to kick things off. <laughs> Hi everyone, thanks for being here. Um, so I'm just here right now to introduce our first reader. And our, um, I'm extraordinarily honored to be able to introduce a very talented writer um, who has personally inspired me um, throughout my times at CalArts and I'm sure that you will all be inspired as well. Um, Sydney Borelli is a local Los Angeles writer of poetry and she's gonna share some of her poems with you. Thank you. this awkward situation where I have to move the mic. Um, So I'm going to read, is this, can you hear? Okay. I'm going to read, the first few poems I'm going to read are from the first part of my collection of poetry that actually, the first part's kind of uh, narrative in itself um, about a singular relationship. Um, So yeah, okay. The first one's called Gray. The deck you share with Unit 4 is the same gray as the deck of my childhood home. Your deck is different, modern and sturdy. The railings could hold a body, could keep a body from falling. Our deck was small and I could never go too close to the edge, even though I always wanted to. I like to stand with my toes over the part of your deck that's just the roof, the part of your deck that has no railing. When you see this, you tell me to step back in a way that makes me miss my mother. And this next piece is called A Child. You are a child, you were a child for the first time, face burrowed between my shoulder blades. They stick out now, not as far as I want them to, but almost. You said I felt good, said you missed me, said more until you almost cried, but didn't. I pushed my body into your body, pushed bone into muscle. You said my name, sighed, fingered my ribs one by one. They stick out now, not as far as I want them to, but almost. You said I felt good, said my name, said you missed me, pressed your lips against my back. You turned my body bone after bone, held my face between two hands, 
thumbs on jawbone. It sticks out now, not as far as I want it to, but almost. You said I felt good, said you missed me, said you missed me, said you missed me. You cried. You are not a child again in the morning, body on other side of bed, body away from body. You said sorry, said too much to drink, said sorry, said sorry, said sorry. I almost cried, but didn't. And um, this is the last poem from that section I'll read. It's called Still Sick. I thought I wasn't sick anymore. Not altogether unsick. Not all of me. But unsick from the sick that mattered. Unsick from the sick part of me that made you leave before you left. I saw you after time passed. After time and distance, I thought, killed that sick part of me. Time, some months, distance, a country. Your eyes are still gray-blue-green. You are still a grown-up. You are still not in love. I am not what I thought. I am still sick. Not more grown-up. Not less in love. Um, And these next two poems are from the third section, actually, of my collection of poetry, and they are... That section doesn't have like a full narrative throughout, but it kind of um, speaks more generally to what my thesis is about, which is um, growing up and kind of navigating the, fa- the space between adolescence and adulthood. Um, I'm not reading from my section sec- second section because that's my family section, and that's just like a whole different level of personal that I don't think you guys really want right now so yeah um so this poem's titled baby bird (laughs) i buried a baby bird in my backyard i found it one morning in almost summer it was small smaller than the palm of my hand round belly thin neck feathers like a layer of gray smoke that wrapped around its almost translucent skin i stopped when i saw it bent down and for a moment let the emptiness of grief hit my stomach. I left it there on the concrete by the side of my house because I didn't know what I should or shouldn't do. I thought maybe it wouldn't want to be touched or moved quite yet. I thought maybe the mother bird would do something, something animals do for the ones they love. I left it there because I wanted to walk away and come back in an hour or so and see no baby bird body, only gray concrete, because maybe it hadn't been dead. Maybe it was waiting for its mother. Maybe it was learning to fly. Before I decided I should bury the bird, before I found a box small enough, before I picked a place in my backyard, a place I thought a bird would like, an old friend called me, And she was crying the same way I cried when I called her almost exactly 11 years ago to tell her my father died. But this time it wasn't a father. This time it was our friend, a friend she hadn't talked to in a few years, a friend I hadn't talked to since I was 16. I buried a baby bird in my backyard. 
I cried as I dug a hole that was a little too shallow. I cried as I placed a small box in dry dirt. Um, and the last poem I'll read is called uh, I Thought We Learned, and it is for Melanie Spiegel, who has the flu today, so she's not here. <laughs> but she's my best friend. She asked me how we got here. I didn't answer for a while. I leaned forward and peeled my sweat-sticky thighs from the metal-woven chair that was built for and remains outside in the heavy heat of Camarillo. It got cold fast, later at dusk like the desert does. I looked around at the maze of single-story terracotta buildings. Outlet malls all look the same where I am from. Unfamiliar sameness to me. We wandered while waiting for her, not my, family. She said my name with a question mark. I apologized, something I'm good at, and said we made a left between, we made a left somewhere between Nike and Brooks Brothers. The car is over there, a gesture. It is hot, an opinion. I am out of cigarettes, a fact. She put her feet, her worn rubber sneakers on the table, made of the same woven metal, metal that so easily steals heat from the sun. She said that wasn't what she meant. Here, a gesture of vastness. This place, a gesture the same. Again, a sigh. The sky was more white than blue, bleached and unnatural like the split and dry ends of my hair that clung to my sweat-sticky back. I told her I didn't know. I told her I was sorry. I told her I thought we had learned how to be not here. Thank you. That was awesome, Sid. Can you guys hear me? <laughs> okay, well, I'm here. I'm Regine, and I'm here to introduce the next reader. Her name is Anna Cruz, and I don't think she knows this, but she's like my first friend in color. So, <laughs> but um, she's an amazing writer, and she's going to share with you part of her thesis. Welcome her. Hi, everybody. Um, First, I wanted to ask my boyfriend if he turned my phone on silent. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I just realized that halfway through, I was like, oh, my God. Um, and I have an obnoxious ringtone, so sorry. Um, so I'm just going to kind of preface this with a little bit about what my thesis is about. Um, it's a novel, and I primarily write in the horror fantasy genre, and um, which is kind of ironic because I don't do well during horror movies. I am notoriously like the one person that's like crying and has to leave the theater. And, um, and that's what I choose to write about. And I write about the things that scare me, um, which is primarily psychological thriller, which is what this is about, because what's more scary than losing your mind. Um, so I'm going to start with one of the beginning chapters. And... When Chloe wakes up, it's to sirens and someone telling her not to move. She's standing, eyes open, but she can't see. Then she blinks, 
and the world comes back into smooth focus. She's standing in the woods next to a small graveyard wearing her pajamas, flannel pants, and an old band t-shirt, hair tangled in a halo around her head. Someone grabs her and she starts, lets out a short scream. She's wrestled to the ground, something hard and cold wrapping around her wrists, handcuffs. What are you doing? What's going on? Chloe shouts. At the precinct, Chloe remembers what it was like to go mad. The way her pulse would ratchet up, how she felt like if she stood still, she'd fly out of her skin. School had been impossible to focus on, so she started skipping. When night came, she'd been wide awake, restless with an itch beneath her skin, like fire in her veins. Moving helped, so she'd sneak out and walk along Crescent Street, past the woods, and as if compelled by some otherworldly force, she'd take the road up to the old church and wander through the small graveyard. She was a force for the spirits. She knew this. If she just solved for X, she'd find the secrets of the universe. She'd pace around the graves, pondering formulas while the sky lightened and the sun crept up. When the world shimmered in the gray, misty pre-dawn light, she'd sometimes see figures, amorphous in the fog. They'd hover over the graves, seeping out of the cold, hard earth. Now, police officers mill around the station, and she sits in a holding cell. It's a small town, and some of the officers know her mom and dad. One of them tells her why she's there. That doesn't seem... No one tells her why she's there. That doesn't seem right to Chloe. Some vague information about her rights swirl in her head, but she, the connections she makes are fuzzy. Her parents rush in, dad in a tee, jeans, and embarrassingly Crocs. Her mom is right behind him, red hair wild and naughty, green eyes landing on the nearest cop. Why the hell is my daughter here? Her father's dark brown eyes land on her almost immediately, and he moves towards her, standing in front of her, blocking her body with his own while her mother shouts at the officers. Chloe doesn't listen to her parents talking. The itch is still under her skin, faint but ever-present. She wants to move so badly, wants to be home, wants to be everywhere at once, anywhere but here. She feels untethered. Murder. The word snaps Chloe back to attention. Her dad is sitting next to her now, left arm wrapped protectively over her shoulder, pulling her close. We received a call from your daughter this morning. She told us there were bodies in the woods off Crescent Street. When we got there, your daughter was there, but there weren't any bodies. We're searching the area, but due to your daughter's state, we suspect that she's state? What do you mean her state? Her mom cuts in. Chloe tunes the conversation out again. She's remembered now. She hasn't been, hadn't been afraid of the specters rising from their graves. They hadn't been frightening or strange, but last night it had been different. A stillness had come over the graveyard. It was so still that even Chloe, in her fog of numbers and equations, halted mid-step. She had brought a small pen light along, and it flickered at the same time she had felt something pass over her. Something electric in the air. The hair on her arms rising with the static, the coppery tang of metal on her tongue. For the first time in a long time, she felt the exhaustion in her body, felt the itching, pulsing, throbbing in her blood cease. Her mind slowed and sharpened. A light came from the woods, and someone was speaking, low and deep. It was a man's voice, and as Chloe approached the light, the voice grew clearer. Next to a tall rowan, 
A man knelt, his back to her. He wore a dark black coat, collar turned up. His hair was blonde, skin pale. In his right hand, he held a knife. Laid out before him on her back was a woman, a girl, really. Her body was glowing. That was the light Chloe had seen through the trees. The power she had felt grew stronger, passing over her like a wave. There was a low hum of energy, more like a feeling than a noise, gaining intensity as the woman's body shone brighter. Just as the hum became nearly unbearable, as Chloe sunk to her knees, her hands over her ears, and her eyes squeezed shut against the light, there was a rush, a blast of air and power and sound, and then silence. She might have passed out or lay insensate but conscious. She finally stirred, coming back to herself in pieces. Birds were chirping again, and there was a small, soft sound of animals scurrying along the leaves and grass. A stick was poking between her shoulder blades. She sat up and looked around. The man had gone, but the woman's body remained. As Chloe crawled closer, she noticed white bones and skulls of small animals picked clean, gleaming in the dawnlight. She was about two inches from the woman's coat sleeve, a bloodless white hand peeking out from underneath the fabric when she heard breathing behind her. She spun around, and there was a man standing above her. His eyes were a light gray, so pale and cold, and as she stared, they got lighter and lighter until they were white and glowing. Chloe flinched away, and he smiled. She recognized him then. Brody. He sat behind her in English, one of the popular kids that normally didn't pay any attention to her. Every once in a while, he'd say something nasty about her race or her hair or her grades, and his friends would laugh and they'd high-five, and she'd sink down into her seat and wish she had more guts to do something about him. His smile got wider, and he bent down, balancing on his feet, resting his arms on his bent knees. You're that girl who's been taking strolls around the town after dark, aren't you? It's not safe to be out, young women like you, thinking you won't be noticed. Chloe felt herself nodding. It was like she had no control over her body. His words filled up her mind. Chloe felt his hand touch her face. It was cold, wet. But I've noticed you, and now you've noticed me, and we can't have that, can we now, Chloe? The hand on her face moved towards her scalp and gripped her hair tightly. She let out a sob, but he told her to be quiet. And even though it still hurt and she still wanted to cry and yell, no sounds came out of her mouth. Chloe had no memory beyond that. The cop said that she called them about a murdered girl, but she didn't remember. She can barely remember seeing Brody, his features fading from her memory as the seconds pass. You didn't find a body, she asks. And that's where I end. (laughs) And, ironically, I'm also introducing the next person. So you haven't seen the last of me yet. Um... (laughs) So um, that is Regine, who introduced me, and she was also one of my first friends in the MFA program here. Um, We talked about television shows and commiserated about, like, coming to California, and she's amazing, an amazing writer, and I can't wait to hear what she reads today. So there you go. Well, hello, hello, hey. Um, okay, so I don't know how I'm going to do this. Well, I do. So, <laughs> well, basically, um, I'm going to read like a few of the things that I have in the book, and then I'll share a little bit of my thesis. And um, so here goes the first piece. Um, 
it deals with a space in the history it holds. Um, and then for most of my life, I've felt like I could never find a place of belonging, so I've decided to find home in me, to be comfortable with myself no matter what place or space I might find myself. So here we go. The kitchen. The smell of bacon wafted through the air. He wasn't awake, but she knew that the scent now lured him into consciousness. The creak of the bed and his footsteps on the wooden floor intermingled with the sizzles and pops from the frying pan. She cut some butter from the stick and smeared it across the other skillet and watched it sputter along the surface. A spittle flat fat flew and ne- landed neatly on her hand. Before she could react, he pulled her against him and coolly kissed the burning spot. She never treated her body as the temple it was and was never taught what to do to do with herself. People told her this, and people told her that, and their words kept her from being. She embodied a crisis caused by unnecessary opinions. His head nuzzled and burrowed into the crook of her neck. She poured the batter into neat circles. She hummed their favorite song, and they swayed in front of the stove. His skin buzzed as he sang along. Pancakes flipped in the air and popped back into the pan. His tummy grumbled. She covered a plate with a paper towel and placed the bacon strips on top. It soaked up the oil. Six eggs cracked against the granite counter and opened over the bacon-greased pan. It seared as they sunnied right up. She knew a flippant, I love you, or you're beautiful, was never the key to open up her ribcage and her legs. Yet she always found herself bare with another pair of thighs in between hers. She thought the friction and the weight and the pull and the push would bring her to an awakening. However, after during and before, left her even more alienated among the sheets, among herself. There was no homecoming. She slid the eggs off the skillet and stacked the pancakes up. The stove turned off was cooling. All the while, he held her. There was no suffocation, no hovering. He let her go. She twirled around and kissed him fully. They pulled apart and he smiled. The table disappeared under the plates, the forks, the spoons, the knives, the cups, and the mugs. Coffee filled the kitchen. The clang, the clatter, bounced between the walls. Their voices and laughter danced around them. They branded her one by one. They left prints all over her body. She wasn't hers anymore. A stranger became her reflection and shouted shouted her every move. She was a halfway house for men passing through. They left her barren. She was hungry, starving, and not one offered her anything more than emptiness. So she had to give it to herself. She swept away the cobwebs and ushered in the spirit. It helped her become a home. The men still haunted her. When he touched her, she felt their ghosts. They loomed in front of him and took space between them. But that was at the beginning of their relationship. She filled herself under her skin. There was no room for him. She wasn't lacking. He didn't mind that she was full. None of him required her to be a clear canvas. He didn't push her aside or speak to her like she was a void, not like the others. He just wanted to be the one to overwhelm her. He wanted to tip her over the edge, and she accepted his offer. They were home.
And now I'm going to read two poems. Um, I'm not going to give you guys a disclaimer. There's none to be given. So, um, okay. I flinched. I flinched when he called me beautiful, when his lips casually slipped over its syllables. I quickly moved aside because I already knew he couldn't possibly mean me. But his intentions hovered over my head, then reached for my dead desire instead. And I remembered my father's voice, how it drowned out all the other noise, and said, Baby, inside you, there's beauty. I came. His love is a gunshot into the quiet night, and when I got hit, I came, alive to the blue skies and his eyes of light and his purple words. He went and I came to follow him down winding and winded roads. He stopped and touched inside, and I came, only to find out that there was no wound. I was not broken, so I came back to where he found me and tried to forget his violet voice that said, for you, my queen, I came. Okay, last thing. <laughs> um, this is part of my thesis, so a little background information. Um, I'm writing a novel about the aftermath of um, a girl who loses her best friend in a car accident, and it's just trying to figure out how to live after that. And... Um, this part right now is like right before the surgery. No, not the surgery, the funeral of her best friend. Okay. Lynn stood in the porcelain bathtub, her feet numb with the morning cold hidden underneath the surface. She stood transfixed, focused on the blood dripping from her body. She closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and open, opened them up again. The blood edged towards the drain. There was so much blood. Sparks flew as Beck's silver Ford Focus skidded to a stop upside down. Lynn stared out of the shattered windshield. Tires stalled and sandaled and booted and cladded feet emerged out of open car doors. Doors. The blue sky shone brightly, vividly against the white clouds. The warring inside of her head reminded her of the ocean, the foamy ocean that her parents took her and her siblings when they were little, when the sun warmed their salted skin and the waves crashed intimately with the sand. Lynn's stomach flopped at the scent of burnt tires. Her other senses caught up with her, tearing her away from the memory. Her lungs heaved hungrily for the breath she didn't realize she was ho holding. The one gulp unsettled her. The air tasted of asphalt and iron. She frantically reached for her seatbelt, but it stubbornly seated her in. Tears bubbled inside her throat, but Lynn breathed them down and glanced over at Bex. Then a scream wrenched out of the depths of her aching, sore body. The sound jousted the surrounding crowd into action. Some people flew into their cars to make room for the ambulance that was coming as others directed the way. A few braved the glass-littered ground to get down to Lynn's level and try to calm her away from her wails, but nothing worked. All that consumed her attention, her focus, was all the blood that matted and stained Bex's hair. There was so much blood. 
Lin, Joshua exclaimed. He came in wondering what Lin was up to. When he woke her up today, she complained of an empty stomach, so he advised that she take some ibuprofen and lay down while he made her some soup. Later, he came in with a bowl of warm chicken noodle soup, but the guest room was empty. He placed it on the nightstand and knocked on the door of the bathroom. He poked his head inside, and there stood Lin naked. His arm flew immediately to cover his eyes, and he gave a shout. There's so much blood, Lin said. The words triggered Joshua out of his modest stance. He grabbed the towel in the sink and quickly wrapped it around her shivering body. Lin barely moved. He noticed her concentration towards her feet and looked down. She stood over blood. He turned on the faucet and warm water flushed out the stain. Lynn, you have your period. He leaned against the sink and watched her. Once the water ran clear, she snapped out of it. She turned around and tightly covered herself with the towel. They both stared at each other. Are you sure about this? Joshua asked, thinking about the past few nights of Lynn barely sleeping through them. Clothes hang loosely on her body. She only entertained a spoonful of food each day under his supervised watch when he wasn't at work. Dark circles appeared around her eyes, hardening hardening them as she focused on his face. I have to, Lynn said simply. Today was the funeral, Bex's funeral. There was no way she would miss it, not when she was the reason that it was occurring. She closed the shower curtain and the towel appeared over the rod. Water pelted into the curtain and Joshua took this as his cue to leave. Before he left, Lynn's bun appeared. Her eyes shone earnestly. Buy me pads, please. Can't she use t- tissue paper? Indignation flared across her face. Joshua, seriously? I mean, if it was good back in the day, why not now he murdered? I'm introducing our last reader today, uh, Michelle Cohen. She's a native California writer and poet. Her work explores the tension between the societal formality and the required structure of self-expression as it pertains to the human condition. It mirrors this tension in both its form as well as its content. Today she'll be reading poems from her thesis collection, Let's Not Talk About It. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to thank all my fellow CalArtians for being here tonight, um, everyone who came out to support me. Um, mostly, I'd like to thank my mentor, Douglas Kearney, who um, is so fabulous himself that he couldn't be here because it's his CD uh, release party tonight. <laughs> um, but um, this manuscript was couldn't have happened without him, and this couldn't have happened without all of you guys. Um, so as, as Sydney uh, said, this is from my collection which is called Let's Not Talk About It because my poems have always been um, writing that I've done in order to deal with the feelings around the things that we should basically not talk about with other people Um, but it's really helped me to be able to do that also so now I'm I'm kind of a little bit more able to talk about my feelings so I'm going to start out by telling you guys how I feel and this poem is called Implications it's really short I feel more like a child now that I am grown Because now I know the difference between being lonely and being alone. 
and this is called Outtakes. I can't take back the way I lost my virginity. Even if it was with twigs scratching my numb back in a dark orchard across from the cinema where we spiked our coke with whiskey and left the show halfway through. I made that same mistake again the next week or two later after I puked in a backyard where he did me right after and all I remembered was him saying, I'll take one for the team and every time I hear that phrase now I cringe even if it's just my roommate talking about eating the last slice of pizza that no one else can finish because I made that mistake again and again and again. This is called uh, The Problem. Alcoholic fit in a box, slept in boxes, smelled like rotten meat, kept nothing, lost ways old men with gnarled, yellowed beards, bums, missing teeth, not missing their children or lovers, not me, never having enough, only messing up enough to be covered up with ritualized applications to schools or of visine, perfume, hand sanitizer on musky, resin-stained fingers, gum between unbrushed teeth. I was asleep in doorways, bare ass, barely inside, and face-on welcome mat in strangers' beds, walked home at all hours, climbed through windows, left shoes in bushes, scaling fences to evade cops, not sure if they were following, trying my best not to fall. I ran barefoot, leaving no trail at all. I got my water. Okay, this is called composition. What's the point of perforation when it tears ragged anyways? Haven't thought about the tiny pieces that make me up in many days. Handmade, invisible sutures, stitching up and keeping going. Fine silk, maggot filled. I've never been too good at sewing. Peeking through a keyhole with a thrown away key. Catch a glimpse in silence of myself acting like a mime. If I could do one thing different, I would smile this time. Okay, and this is called, um, this was written in Jen Hofer's class, it's called The Fun Will Never End Here because it never had a beginning. I'm more interested in the people than I am in their stuff, but no one is excited to see me here. Everything and everyone is ideal here. No one could do it better. I want to escape from this large group of people buying and selling desirable things, this parade where, yes, I feel alone. No, I'm not afraid of the cliché. I walk towards an entrance with a sign that says no exit. I escape to a place where I am refused service. I want to eat rice balls at a table, alone, in a place no one I came with wants to be. 
I want it to not be two years later, to not have chain-smoked cigarettes for lunch and breakfast, about to eat a sushi roll on a stomach full of smoke at quarter to four in Tokyo town while my car full of friends enjoy the displays and think I'm lost in the crowd of people. People waiting until their last clean shirt to do the laundry, the last nice notice to pay the bill, the last week of the year to buy a gift. I'll sneak back in. I'll pull, even though the sign says push. Okay, this is called Nothing to Lose. Let's never talk or see each other ever again, starting right now. It would make death so much easier. We could take control of the big goodbye. We could even pick and choose every last tear we would decide to cry. It could be as dramatic or not as suits our moods. Let's just act it out. Then we'll have nothing left to lose. And, okay, now to the sex section. This is called, uh, There Are Two Eyes in Narcissism. He comes over to have sex, and I tell him I'm on my period, even though I'm really not. And I wonder if he is wondering why then I had him over, and I am wondering why I had him over. We talk, which consists of mostly him talking and I nodding, and it makes me feel better about me that he is so narcissistic. (laughs) And this is called the nasty parts. He was telling me about his fetish for the smell of my armpits, and I was licking the sweat off his forehead. And maybe because what he loved most Sorry, what I loved most was that he loved the most nasty parts of me is the reason why it just wasn't meant to be. And now some days my heartbeat feels like a disturbance, palpitating parts of me that it shouldn't be. Wrapped in my dirty towel that is covered in me, covering parts that no one should see. Oh, and now on to love. So this one was originally called Fine Dust, and then my mentor, Douglas, was like, hey, why don't you just call it like it is, and so now it's just called love. (laughs) Sunsets upstage the beauty of dirt. I want to rub the way you stink so beautifully, humanly away, into the open wound, the shape that represents a feeling that is an organ that can stop beating any moment. This is called stones and trash. They tell us 
that we will continue to like pain because that is what we are used to. What we are used to is comfortable. Black, blue, bruises, and broken bones. What we are used to is trash and stones. That time he left bite marks on my back, I wasn't shocked. And he always made sure the deadbolt was locked. He questioned my father just by staring at the door. And then he taught me what the chain lock is for. Next time, he said, in an overprotective tone, look out before you open when you're at home alone. All right, I got three more for you. This is called For a While. Maybe I will come visit you for a while in Chicago when my commitments fall through. And from there we can see if drizzling feelings might bloom. Why you would want me, there's no clue, but you can always choose. I don't have much to offer you except an extra special chance to be used. Saintly, you would welcome chance with a smile offering salvation that you and I would wear away slowly as liquid skies evaporation. It would flutter into one night, gone like the childhood innocence you never lost, and mine would come back to haunt us, singing, you can never take it back, and you can never have me back. Those things that you've seen, those things that you've done, and for a while, in that moment, we will have lived as one. Okay, and this one is called Cookie Cutter. A sliver of silver, like scriptures that grow old and mold, like instinct in an instant, perfect regret, underestimated and frustrated, a polywog for a lollipop. Lame with lament, encapsulated and encompassed with anger and pissed at existence, a nuisance, just motion, no option, an old mold. The sentence is jealous of this rebelliousness, of shards of grass and of blades of glass. Lip snarled as each step shows that gnarled toes bleed red rose. And last but not least, or maybe least, this is called Find Me Here. Find me here, unenchanted, but not dis like it could or maybe should be. Here at rest and at peace with the uneasy disease with the wanting, knowing, not needing, bleeding out an ache in my mind, feeling so real, I can't lay it down yet. Coming to know it closely, like a friend I want to hold, like a baby wrapped tightly on the green grass, and a fuzzy black bumblebee on the tip of its nose, like I want to get away from it, but find me here, still getting acquainted 
like you're hiding something lethal and I'm hiding something legit, the sickness that became a weakness when you decided to nurture it. I can sit in this, just like I blink my eyes and time moves on in every direction, away from and back to here. Thank you. Let's give him another round. Yay! You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.